0: It has just gone one o'clock, welcome back in and welcome to the folks that have been with the Rural Roundup with Joey Bell who's filling in for Andy Thompson, doing a great job too. Uh, Afternoons to staff, we've got a couple of hours to go here. Uh, For those that have just joined we just caught up with uh, Faith Vui who is the new New Zealand amateur women's golf champ, great to catch up with her. Still to come in the next couple of hours, very shortly Tom Rennie talking EPL, Andrew Mulligan will be chatting to him about the breakers the NBL, the NBA Andrew Mulligan, the voice of Sky Sports Basketball, looking forward to catching up with Matt Fenn as well who's undertaking a massive running challenge for Gumboot Friday he puts himself through some torture this man, uh, we'll also have What's Making News and all the other fun stuff, but over to the Northern Hemisphere we go now and we're talking the wonderful game, the beautiful game, the world game association football. Gosh, it's a long time since I heard it say that. Tom Rennie is our man on the ground in the UK. Wonderful correspondent we get on from time to time. Tom, welcome in. Um, lots to talk about, mainly off-field stuff or on-field. I'm talking VAR. Are people falling out of love with VAR quite rapidly? Um,
1: I don't know, you know. I really don't know because The the furore from this weekend about the controversial decisions in various games, I think we all get caught up in it because we all want someone to blame. And VAR has very much become football's boogeyman in the same way that not having video reviews was football's boogeyman for the best part of 30 years (laughs) of Premier League football. But if you just take the microcosm and madness of the Monday night football between Tottenham and Chelsea, right? They, had, they went to VAR nine times, right, which is ludicrous. It's a ludicrous amount of times for it to happen. But because of the chaos of the game, it was a necessity. There was, I think, four, or was it five in the end? Disallowed goals, there was a penalty, there was two reds, there was all sorts of pandemonium. And if you step back from it, yes, it's annoying that sometimes in games you don't quite know what's going on and it's not being delivered maybe as, as we all individually would like. They got every single decision right. It was all right. And, and the only ones that we could say they might have got wrong, potentially Rhys James flinging an elbow into a Tottenham player's face and Romero not being sent off six minutes before he actually got sent off. Those are subjective decisions that on field were given as, as they were by the video assistant. So I actually think Monday Night Football, the Tottenham Chelsea game, was almost a vindication of VAR. I think it helped the game. I think it helped the drama of it. And if we went to the Arsenal game, for example, the Newcastle match on the on the Saturday, maybe Miko Arteta might think that goal being given was a disgrace. But I tell you what, if it wasn't involving VAR, the exact same thing would have happened. The goal was given on the field and we'd be here moaning about the goal being given without the five-minute check there was for the four potential infringements.
0: The interesting thing to me is the different reactions um, out of Postacoglu and Arteta, though. Postacoglu's a bit of shrug the shoulders. I'm not a big fan, but that's what it is. And I I found it quite encouraging, he said, we're depowering the officials. And the reason I say that is across other sports as well. Of course, we've just had the Rugby World Cup all of the discussion was mm. about the TMO and the referees. We see it in the NRL Rugby League. Everyone's bagging the bunker and all of that. We are now commentating on officialdom and not the game anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I think we're entering a new era of officialdom. I, lo- I love that word you just used, and I'm going to use it liberally from this point onwards, because <laughs> um, I, I think that previously there was a great thing. If you ever watch Matter the a day in like that 70s and the 80s in England, they used to be like, and there's your referee, it's John Clark from Coventry. And just stupid, really, like, it was just some bloke that bloke It was a bank manager who had helped out at the weekend. Um, <laughs> that is not what it is now, right? Um, I think the referee should be paid considerably more. I think the referees in the Premier League, certainly, should get the median Premier League player's salary, which is about 50 grand a week. Like, why does Craig Dawson, the Wolves centre-half, earn more than Anthony Taylor? It's ludicrous. Um, so first of all, they should get paid a lot, lot more. Secondly, there should be a fast track to the top and you don't have to start being a referee at an under-60s game 25 years before you actually become a professional. And maybe we'd encourage some of those people who didn't make it as footballers but know the rules inside out or be keen to do it to stay in the game and become referees. There's loads of things that I would like to see change. But I think fundamentally, there has been a lack of respect to officials in soccer for a long, long time. And I think that it has to change. I like what Postacoglu said, though it is worth noting he did get a yellow card in the match for, I think, dissent um, after one of the decisions. Um, So, you know, let's not go absolutely wild on St. Ange here. Um, But I I do think that point was absolutely right. I do think we need to fundamentally change the way we are talking about officials, the way the players talk to officials on the field, but also the officials themselves need to be improved. And how do you do that? You make it a considerably more attractive job. And that's finances, that's resources, that's fundamental change to interpretation of laws. It's playing the the VAR like they do the TMO, like they did the Women's World Cup for the referee, into the stadium. There's so many things that are currently getting wrong. And it's up to Howard Webb, in England at least, to make those changes that will make it work in the biggest league in the world. People talk a lot about Howard Webb. He worked in MLS introducing their VAR before coming to the Premier League, right? And I speak to a lot of people that work on MLS and work for Apple TV and all that in in America, and they all are so full of praise for Howard Webb for the way he brought VAR in. The trouble is, it is not as high profile, right? I like to watch MLS and all that, but it is not even the biggest sport in America. It's not the biggest sport in every individual state that it's in, and even though they get decent crowds, it ain't like the Premier League where they talk about it everywhere from bangladesh to zimbabwe right it's everywhere so you do have a higher level of scrutiny and at the moment i think howard webb trying to change things that mike tup show and all that i don't think he's getting it right and i think there are some fundamental changes that are obvious that need to come in whether he is going to be able to do that whether he agrees with my assessment and whether he's got a plan to improve the overall caliber of referees that remains to be seen but at the moment I don't know. I think for a lot of people, the jury's out. I'm still pro-VAR, but, um, you know, we're only one complete Charlie Fox shot away from totally changing that conversation.
0: The interesting thing, that the dynamic it's brought to the game as well, uh, Tottenham Chelsea, for example, VAR and injury time, there was 21 minutes added time, oh. which is more than 20% of a game. That is a long, long time.
1: Yeah, look, I think one of the things I've not enjoyed about this year is the additional time. What I would say, though, my colleague Simon Jordan at TalkSport made this point either today or the day before. Um, stop cheating, then, players. Mm. Stop cheating, stop diving, stop manipulating. And, and Pastor Koglu said it as well, right? He was talking about um, whatever rules there are in the game, I'll tell you this as manager, this is Pastor Coglu, we're trying to find a way to bend and get around those rules to our team's advantage. And uh, him saying it so clearly like that I hope opened a few people's eyes. The players are liars. They are liars. They are cheats. They are Fagin's boys in Oliver Twist, right? That's exactly who they are. They are out stealing pocket watches all over to try and enrich themselves and their clubs. That is what football is. And I think you're in a situation here with the additional time. Parve has actually been quite effective. There's this new rule this year that if you get injured or feign injury, you must stay off the field for 30 seconds the play resumes and that player must stand on the sideline, either receiving treatment or asking to come back on for 30 seconds. So that has led to it. I've seen this players not staying down injured because they know they'll have to go off or players who have pretended to be injured, then begging to come back on and their team are suffering without them for 30 seconds, which is a significant amount of time while they have tried to stop the clock or whatever their reasoning was. So that was already working. I don't think you need to do that and add on the additional time. Some of these games are 4-0 and there's eight minutes added on. Mm. It is not necessary to do that. And I think we need to come to a, I hate saying common sense because your common sense is not my common sense. So it's a stupid thing to say, but we need to come to the equivalent of a non-stupid thing to say when I say common sense way of doing the timing.
0: Just on Tottenham, uh, two Reds, first loss of the season. What, what do you think that will do for their momentum? Because you can go one or two ways, can't you? After a controversial game, Red cards, mm. your first loss. Ange seems to have the players, though.
1: Well, does he? I mean, they lost James Madison to injury. They lost Mickey van der Ven, who's been terrific at the start of the season. They've lost Christian Romero to a suspension. Um, I think I saw last night on Monday Night Football that only three of the players that ended the game for Tottenham were actually on the field at the start of the match. Um, so he had to make a lot of change in that game where he's not made a great deal of change this season. Uh, are now injured. He, he Instagrammed or social media at some point today. He's going to be out after surgery for a while as well. I mean, look, I'll say this to Tottenham Hotspur... In the macro of it all, it's been a terrific start. Some really great performances, some really great results. But if you go by the statistical company Opta, they had the easiest start of any team in the Premier League by some margin. They played Barman United, who they met at a really good time. And Liverpool, who ended the game with nine men, um, it was only really the Arsenal game you're looking at. They played all the relegated teams. um, Forgive me, the promoted teams, the relegation-threatened teams. Some of the lower league team, lower in the league teams, they, they beaten them all and done really well, right? So I'm not disparaging that, but they had a really easy run. They've got Wolves coming up Saturday, then an international break. So they only played three top teams in their opening 13 games. So 10 winnable matches of which they won all of them. So very impressive. The next run is going to be interesting. How they cope with the injuries are going to be interesting. And reacting after a loss is going to be interesting too, because all this heroic Tottenham na- narrative on Tuesday, I thought was complete garbage. Tottenham were disgraceful in this game against Chelsea. The Romero sending off is moronic to the highest degree when you consider he should have been sent off three or four minutes earlier. Udogi was a red card waiting to happen. He should have been taken off by Foster Coglu, who did not take him off. That's bad managerial judgment. And the formation he played in that second half, I mean, that was thick as mints. what he was trying to do there against Chelsea, playing offside on the halfway in a seven-zero-one one formation. It was stupid, and if Chelsea were a bit better and a bit brighter, they could have won that 10-1, never mind 4-1. It was Chelsea's profligacy and wastefulness and poor execution of chip over the top and run onto it tactics that meant it was only 4-1. And they still allowed Nicholas Jackson to score one of the shonkiest, most useless hat-tricks of all time um, because of this silly halfway-line tactic. Liverpool played with nine at that stadium, six or seven weeks ago and showed you how you do it. You don't do what Postacoglu did with the under-13s. And saying it's my philosophy, that's great when you've won eight, drawn two and lost one. When they lose five in a row, if they lose five in a row, do that again and we'll see how many people are singing Angels by Robbie Williams after that.
0: <laughs> you just touched on Liverpool. Uh, down 1-0 to Luton Town, got back with a, an oh, extra, extra time. Uh, goal scored by Diaz Uh, interesting story around Diaz though isn't it who made an announcement after this game uh, about his father in Colombia that's a remarkable story
1: yeah and and last I heard and I don't know if there's been an update on it since I looked this afternoon his father was still kidnapped in Colombia um, and the Capitals had agreed to release him, but who knows where that goes from here. And, and we hope for uh, the, the safe recovery of, uh, of Luis Diaz's dad. Um, it's an incredible story. It's a horrific story. Um, and it's incredible bravery, really, for Luis Diaz to, A, stay in England, and B, play the game, and, and C, of course, score that equalising goal as well. Um, and and Jurgen Klopp said before the weekend he was asked Luis Diaz if he felt up to playing, which he evidently did when he came off the bench that, to score that goal. So it's an incredible story. And, and more broadly on Liverpool, it was an interesting game because they had, I think, 27 to 30 shots in the match against Luton um, and could have actually lost it if not for that late late equaliser. And Luton Town are one of those teams that, you know, they're going to get relegated this year. The, the three that came up are all going to go down. They're the worst trio of teams to come up for 30 years together. They're all nowhere near good enough. None of them will get 25 to 30 points. Um, but Luton are going to battle for it. They're going to battle and scrap and they're going to make you beat them. Burnley are not doing that. Sheffield United are not doing that. Um, And I thought it was very commendable the way they played against the Liverpool team, who I think will push the title close actually this year. I think City will win it because um, City will win it, right? I don't need to (laughs) necessarily explain that at great length, but um, I think if City end up getting 90 to 95 points, which I think they will, I think Liverpool could be up for an 85-plus, point season this season. So those drop points at the weekend could actually prove really crucial in the end.
0: Um, Relegation, you just sort of touched on it. Sammy, my producer, just said, how do you pick the three going down? I think you've sort of earmarked Luton will fight and scrap. It's incredible after 11 games, there's four teams on one win.
1: Yeah. Look, I think I mentioned it earlier, the three teams that have come up I know when they're good enough for various reasons. Uh, Sheffield United, there are some financial issues yet there that meant coming into a season when they'd been promoted, they sold their best two players from last season uh, and died to Marseille and Sander Verge, weirdly to Burnley. Um, and they added not a great deal of quality, though Cameron Archer's goal, who they did sign, the first goal against Wolves the weekend was spectacular. Um, and it was impressive to see them win against Wolves at the weekend, though it took a 100-minute penalty from Ollie Norwood to do it, but they're on, I think, four points. If five, four or five points, um, they're going to go down. They're, they just don't have the quality. It's the same story for Burnley. Vincent Company thought he could come up and play the same football that he was playing in the Championship against Tottenham uh, and Man City. And there's a reason you don't do that because you get beat. Um, they may go on a run of results, but I'm not seeing it. Again, they do not have the Premier League quality. And it's the same story with Luton Town. It's, it's an impressive story that Luton have made it to the Premier League. And I think Rob Edwards, their manager, has been a lot more pragmatic in the way he's gone about it to try and dig out and grind out and fight for for points as opposed to the others that have seemingly thought, oh, we're at the big table now, so we, we, we get the big chicken leg. Like, that's just not how it works. Man United have got that one, and there's a whole other turkey being cooked that the sovereign wealth funds have got. So, you know, I, I think they are the worst three. And I think though like, last season was a really bad year to be rubbish. And what I mean by that is last year it was Southampton and Leicester City and Leeds that went down. This year, all three of them would survive with the poor quality of the three teams that came up. So there was a really bad year last year. West Ham could have gone. Everton could have gone. This year, I think they're both going to be comfortably mid-table. This year, I think you can be rubbish and still survive. Um, Bournemouth is the only possibility. I think they've got a poor squad as well. Sacking a good manager. fair enough, he's my mate, so I would say this, in Gary O'Neill, who's now gone to Wolves, uh, with another colleague of ours, Sean Derry, You know, to go there and replace him with Andoni Ríola, who you'd only heard of if you listened to niche Spanish football or European football podcasts, (laughs) and an agent recommended to uh, the American owner, Bill Foley, to go get him. Um, Look, they got mugged bringing this guy in, and you don't, again, come to the Premier League and try and implement your will, not without the backing of a sovereign wealth fund, that is.
0: Brilliant. And uh, my brother-in-law wouldn't forgive me if I didn't ask you about Man City beating Bournemouth 6-1. But interesting in that game, Erling Haaland taken off around half-time, I think it was. Is there an injury uh, cloud over Haaland?
1: Yeah, there's some concerns um, that he might not play midweek and possibly not at the weekend as well against Chelsea. Uh, I've not got the latest on that today, but he did go off with a legitimate injury and he was limping as he came off against Bournemouth at the weekend. But um, um, you can tell your brother that Everyone listening to this is playing the world's smallest violin for him uh, right now. Because, sure, they might lose Erling Haaland for a couple of weeks. But, oh, look, they've got Julian Alvarez. And, oh, Jack Grealish can't get in the team. Don't worry. We've got Jeremy Doku. You know, the squad is ridiculous. The manager's a genius They're going to win the league and probably the Champions League again. And they could do it if Erling Haaland was missing for the next four months. Never mind the next four games. So... Um, Yeah, there are some concerns maybe for fantasy football players, but for Man City, I don't think so.
0: Brilliant. Tom Rennie, always appreciate your time. Thanks for making time for us down here in New Zealand.
1: Anytime. Thanks, mate.